So we cascaded the decision tree across the whole company. And the way we did this is that we just had each department lead fill out the tree with their team. So identify, you know, what is the leaf decision? So a decision I can make and don't need to report to anybody. Branch decision, so one that I can make and then just report it out later as an FYI. And then what's root, which requires collaboration and for everybody to be in agreement before the decision's made. Hi there, this is Ben Morton and welcome to another episode of the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast. It's the weekly show that brings you inspiring interviews with senior leaders and genuine subject matter experts, all designed to help you be the very best leader that you can possibly be. And as a little side note before I introduce this week's guest, I think this show is a great case study into what can happen when we're brave enough to try something new and overcome the fear of launching something that's not quite perfect. After all, as many people have said, done is often better than perfect, right? So this podcast, this show, it started during the early months of COVID as a little curiosity project, I guess. And here we are now recording the 100th episode of the show, having had the opportunity and genuine privilege to interview some truly fantastic guests. Some of them have been well-known leaders from big businesses and many have been what I would describe as truly incredible everyday leaders. And I think what has stood out for me is whatever their background or notoriety, they've all been equally interesting and inspiring and certainly I've been able to learn a huge amount from each and every one of them. But now let's get back to this week's episode, episode 100, and let me introduce today's guest, which is Shannon Minifee, who is the CEO of Box of Crowns. So Shannon began her career in academia, a pursuit driven by her desire to be part of conversations that she thinks are important. She embarked on the learning and development path in 2016, bringing with her more than a decade of experience in education and in practicing incisive investigation. Shannon has got a PhD in English and while literature and literary criticism persist as her favourite hobby, she is thrilled and excited to be leading the team at Box of Crayons, whose key mission is to unleash the power of curiosity. In this episode, we spoke at length about her own transition into the CEO role and her top tips for successfully taking over as CEO from the company's founder, that being Michael Bungay-Stanier, who I interviewed in episode 78 of the show. So this really does now give you the other side of the coin from that conversation with Michael. Before we get into this episode, do let me encourage you to head over to the online courses page of my website at ben-morton.com, where you can sign up for my 10 for 10 leadership course. It's totally free, it's bite-sized, and it covers some of the most common leadership topics and challenges that I get asked about in my coaching and mentoring sessions. It also gets consistently great feedback, so do go check that out. 
But now, and without any further delay, let's get into this week's episode and please enjoy my fascinating conversation with Shannon Minifee. Shannon, a very warm welcome to the podcast. It's fantastic to have you on the show. It's fantastic to be talking to you. First of all, how are you? I am well, Ben. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Shannon, let's dive right in. Obviously, we had Michael on the show back in episode 78, talking about the transition and him handing over and you taking on the role of CEO. But I'd love to hear your story and your your journey. So would you mind just sharing with the listeners sort of how you started working at Box of Crowns and then how you ended up facing the the somewhat daunting task of taking over as CEO from, from the founder? Yeah, sure. I love that frame. I'm following him coming here on the podcast and following him at, at BOC and they're, they're big shoes to fill. So I started working at Box of Crayons in December, January of 2015, 2016, just as the coaching habit book, Michael's uh, most famous book was about to come out. So at that time I was juggling teaching in an adjunct position as part of completing a doctorate in English at Queen's University here in Canada. I was working at a restaurant a couple days a week to make help make our mortgage. Uh, and I was also teaching uh, one or two other adjunct positions and then working uh, in publishing as well. So Michael, our founder, and his wife, Marcella, would come into the wine bar where I worked a couple times a week and I served them and we had a relationship and they are a master's and a PhD in, in English as well. So we sort of chat about that and chat about my all the many things I had going on. So they sort of came to me in that winter in December and asked if I wanted to either eliminate one of the things I had in my repertoire or take on yet another role working with them about 10 hours a week. So I had no idea what he did, what they did or what their company was about, but I joined in a really limited capacity to do publicity for this little book that was about to come out. And that book just garnered a lot of attention. I, I wasn't the only one working on its publicity. He had hired a PR firm and was doing a lot of things himself. I think he's written an article about all of the, the ways he got that book out there. Um, but it just brought a lot of attention, a lot of sales inquiries into Box of Crayons. So in that spring of 2016, he realized he needed a salesperson pretty quickly. So he came and asked me and I said, well, I, that's strange. Like I, you know, <laughs> I'm not a salesperson. I'm going to be an English professor, but okay, I'll, I'll do this thing for you. And so they put me through a disc assessment or something like that. And basically the other side of that assessment was you're not really a salesperson. You know, you're interested in like aesthetics and, uh, not, not money driven enough or, and that's not one of, one of the four, but basically it was like, you're not a salesperson. So then I was like, that's no problem. I'm not going to be a salesperson anyway. And then a couple months later, Michael came back to me again and said, you know, I think maybe you, you could be the, our first salesperson. And so from there, we we started sort of building the, the structures of, of the company that Box of Crayons would become. So building actual departments, um, starting with, with the sales function and creating a, a sales process. And in 2019, by 2019, I'd been at that for three years and had built a sales team and we'd brought on an operations lead, building up an operations team. And that's sort of what led us to 2019 and to me taking over as CEO. Wow. Quite some story. <laughs> yeah, I guess. It just, it seemed to unfold sort of 
sort of naturally. It's not like I came in setting my sights on that in any way. Um, in fact, the you know, in the first three years, I, I still always thought it was sort of a, a temporary thing. Yeah, on that note of it unfolding naturally, there's a there's a question at the front of my mind. It's not really a leadership question at all. I guess it's more of a human question or about about relationships. And I think this, the frame to this question is probably that I think here in the UK, we generally have a very different and poorer view of the service industry than mm-hmm. our friends in the U- US and, and, and Canada. But I'm just really curious, like, for, for, for one, like, how often did Michael and Marcella, his wife, go into that restaurant? But <laughs> how did how did that conversation, I'm just curious how you even started connecting and how that all came about? Because like in many cases in the UK, I just don't think people going into a restaurant, the majority wouldn't kind of get to know the staff working in the in the restaurant. And I'm just curious, I just don't think that would happen like that in the UK. Yeah, m- maybe not. I think on the one hand, it tells you about the kind of people that they are, yeah, which is that they are interested and curious about anyone and everyone. They're above no one and they are really engaged in their local community. So they live down the street from the restaurant and I live, I lived up the street from the restaurant. And so, I mean, I'm not the only person that they were on a first name basis with in that place by any means. And I mean, they came in once, once, maybe twice a week. It's not, you know, but it's just who they are. They, it's it's a little place. They sat at the bar. And so I served them at the bar. There's nowhere to, there's nowhere for me to go. I'm trapped back there Yeah, and there's nowhere for them to go. And so you just start chatting. I think as soon as you find out that, you know, all three of you did graduate studies in literature, uh, immediately you're, you're connecting over that. I think that there's always interesting stories of why people are doing the work that, that they're doing. That's not to say that everybody who's working in the service industry is or should be doing something else, but, but that's yeah. often the case. And so, um, yeah, I think just, yeah, we were trapped there. They were trapped in their bar schools <laughs> and I was trapped behind this tiny bar. Um, as soon as you, you find that out, you have something to connect over. Yeah. I can think of worse places to be trapped as well. Yeah, yeah, it's it's great. It's uh in the, in the early days, I remember having like hiring new salespeople and so interviewing people with like all kinds of experience I didn't have as sales directors and messaging Michael and feeling really nervous about that. You know, like I would never get this job that I'm hiring, I'm the hiring manager for. And he's like, yeah, our, our hiring strategy, the talent strategy has changed somewhat from I'll have another glass of Chianti and by the way, we'd like <laughs> <it down." laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Coming back to some more leadership focus questions, we'll get on to the transition element and how it worked between you, you and Michael shortly. But from a purely leadership perspective, is there anything significant that perhaps you wish you'd done before taking on that role? Anything specific that you wish you had learned or experienced that with the the wonderful gift that is hindsight, right, you think kind of will have would have helped you? Yeah. I mean, honestly, and this, this is more about just me and how I'm wired, which is always wanting to know everything at the outset, except that's not how things work. (laughs) Um, But I, I wish I'd done, learned or experienced 
almost anything, you know, sort of in a corporate world before taking on the role of CEO. So I had, I had close to five years of getting to know our industry and our client needs and how Box of Crayons works. But from a leadership perspective in particular, I feel that the, the sort of two experiences I've had in any kind of people leader role were either contained to people management rather than leadership. And that was, you know, in the context of the service industry. So working restaurants while doing graduate school. And so it was very good at sort of getting people to do a thing and very good at being customer centric, but, but not leadership. And then the other instance sort of where I can think about myself in a leadership role is as a teacher. It feels like a stretch, but it's not because you're up there getting people excited about ideas. Hmm. experiencing that passion of trying to get people in, to enlist to, to these ideas that you're excited about um, is part of what leadership is about. But I wish I had had more experience building teams in particular and understanding the kinds of behaviors and personalities that would work and it would help us drive results while holding up the culture and, ju- and just having more of an understanding of the the kinds of folks that I would want on my team. So yeah, building teams was not an experience that I had uh, until I got to Box of Crayons and started to build the sales team. And now, and then as CEO, it's, it's building a leadership team. So, and that's difficult. I mean, in the peer networks I'm part of, the conversations about how to build your leadership team are ongoing. Like no one knows yeah. exactly what to do, but I, you know, I just, because I, I always wish I knew all the things at the start, yeah. that's an experience I wish I, wish I, I had more of. Yeah. And, and how aware of those gaps, let's call them, kind of where were you at the time going into the role? Did you have moments where you thought like, oh man, kind of, I, I wish I had some more leadership experience on top of my management experience. And did you think, oh man, I, I really need to quickly get up to speed with how I'm going to build, build this leadership team? Or did that sort of awareness come as you got into the role? It comes in waves, Ben. Like there's almost almost every day there's a moment where I'm like, oh, okay, I don't know how to do that. Or this is part of the job. I didn't think this was part of the job, but it comes in waves. I'll go through, you know, a period of time, maybe it's a couple weeks or maybe even longer than a month where I'm feeling pretty good. I'm feeling, you know, unconsciously competent or something. And then I'll get very consciously incompetent at certain moments or if certain, if things feel like they're breaking. Um, And then my inclination, I guess, because of my training in the past is to, okay, what are all the things I can read about that? Sort of forgetting that every single day I'm sort of doing a crash course in an MBA and that there's sort of practical ways for me to learn things and, and more of a network than I sometimes realize for me to draw upon. But yeah, because I'm, I'm always, I go to the research mode of, okay, I'll just read all the things I can about this and somehow that will that will fix things. So yeah, the short answer is I come in and out of awareness <laughs> of what the gaps are. Um, but what helps me with that from a perspective, you know, in gaining perspective is that as part of setting me up for the role, uh, Michael called on as many, you know, peers as he had who are CEOs of companies similar to ours or similar in size and set up these, you know, hello calls with me so that I could ask them, you know, what was it like? You know, what, what is the job like? And I remember one of them said to me, it doesn't get easy. Like every single day is terrifying in the sense of not knowing, feeling like you don't know what, how to do the job. And that 
is, it can be, that's normal. Like she's like, normalize that. It doesn't go away, but it's a good sign because if you continue to feel like, oh, I thought I, I was doing it and now I don't know how to do how to do what I'm doing. It just means that you're continuing to grow and stretch. So it's a good sign, but get used to it. So I can hundred percent re- relate to that. I think those feelings of fear, those terrifying feelings. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't think they go away, do they? You just perhaps... I think, as you said, you probably normalize them and get better at just kind of noticing them and dealing with them rather than spending too much time fretting over them, maybe. Is that is that your experience? Yep, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably like a natural, it's probably like a stress response that occasionally your body just needs to not be, you know, be in that state all of the time. Yeah. Were there any other nuggets or pearls of wisdom that particularly still stand out for you from those hello calls, Shannon? From those hello calls? Yeah, absolutely. That was a big one. The other big one was, you know, there's one woman who talked a lot about just sort of um, how she bucketed her time and that I thought was really helpful. And I still, to this day, you know, our team, we write uh, weekly memos, our leadership team, letting each other know what are the what are the key critical things you're working on this on this week, or what are we learning about our business and our clients through those activities. And I still structure my my memo along those buckets. But she said, you know, you want to look at your time this way. You want to stay close to close to the customer, close to the client, whatever that looks like for you. So she worked in the food industry. So she's like, for me, that's working, that's eating, and other in competitors' restaurants, actually. So for me, that looks like selling alongside the team, meeting with with sales and, and hearing about client insights, things like that. And then staying close to the competition was her next bucket. So conversations with indirect competitors, reading and looking around at what's in the market, things like that. And then another bucket was just continually calibrating the top team. Like are is the is the leadership team where they need to be? What do they need to succeed? Is it the right butts in the right seats? Just really calibrating that top team on a regular basis. And then the last one was about just getting she called it getting smarter. And for her, that was the time that she spent with strategic advisors in peer groups. Um, and things like that, or with coaches. So I spend a not insinif- insignificant time with a sort of informal advisory board that is super helpful. And people have different lenses and different ways of, of helping me out and that help really catalyze my development, I think. So mm-hmm. those, those four buckets are really helpful. Close to the customer, close to the competition, calibrating the top team and getting smarter. I love the fact that calibrating the top team is is in there for a long time. I've spoken about, I think the leaders in organizations that do really well and the teams that perhaps perform to the highest standards, I think are the ones where team development is a, is a constant, like as she described in those four buckets. Mm -hmm. And in in many organizations and teams, it, it isn't right. It's more often the case where suddenly six months go by and suddenly the, the leader of that particular team goes, ah, shit not done any team development, let's book an offsite and get a facilitator. And you have this two day offsite and then you, you do it and nothing really happens. And then another six or 12 months go by, go, oh man, must do something on, on the team. And it's this very sporadic approach, which doesn't really lead to any particular growth or, or, or improvement. So I just, I love the fact that it's up there as one of those top, top four buckets. 
Yeah. And not to say that it isn't something that I, I need to continue to, to figure out or, or to improve because even though, you know, given what box of crayons does, we should know better than this. And I've taken that sporadic approach sometimes too, or my, you know, this kind of is related to the, oh, I'll go read a book about it. We can throw IP at the problem all day long. You know, yeah. I've done, yeah. I can name right off the bat five different, you know, authors or whatever that we've brought in or approaches we've taken. And in the moment, those sessions, whether they're facilitated or, you know, I'm facilitating it myself, they're great. And we feel connected and we feel like we got all these insights about who we are as people and how we work. But then you go off and you don't know how to have those insights help you moving forward. Like sometimes the language will stick a little bit, yeah. but getting those things to change is the toughest thing finding ways to, to keep it sticky and do what, you know, what we call a box of crayons, like a drip irrigation <laughs> rather yeah. than flash flood. So finding ways to, to do that really, yeah, it remains a challenge. That, I mean, that is the number one challenge for every team, right? How do you yeah. make it stick and have impact beyond the, beyond the offsite? Yeah, yeah. that's it. <laughs> so let's talk about the transition, Shannon. So, so I know that you and Michael took a very intentional and well-planned approach to handing over, which no doubt prevented lots of potential challenges that might have otherwise have arisen. But despite that, I guess because you're both human and us humans are weird and wonderful and complex beings, like there must still have been some challenges and, and friction points, I'm, I'm guessing. So <laughs> if so, like where where did they arise? What what were they and how did you both both handle them? Yeah. Yeah, we did. We did take a really thoughtful approach. Uh, we engaged Jill Murphy, whose company Eight Rules provides, uh, among other things, coaching and facilitation. And she took us through conversations about authority delegation and sort of what happens when Michael does X. <laughs> and we felt well set up. But you're right. There have been some trying times because we're human and we're figuring out as we go. I will say off the top that it remains shocking to me how loose Michael's hands are around things. Like in the sense that like th- this company is his baby. And, you know, I'll talk a bit about some of the, we, you know, we can talk about some of the things that were surprised. I was surprised to hear how wedded he was to them, but for the most part, just the amount of sort of flexibility and freedom. I don't know that I would be able to, to, to be that way. So I'd say the toughest things for me were, old habits dying hard in the very beginning. So we, me and my leadership team with, with Jill had just had an offsite, but a month before we made the transition. So we had an offsite where we revised and articulated a new strategy and some key objectives for me to sort of, you know, kick off as CEO. I'm announced as CEO and Michael goes totally dark for a month. And this was planned to really give me some time on stage and some space. But then he returns from his trip a month later and sends an email uh, to me and most of of the team on CC talking about a bunch of new ideas and new objectives to try. Uh, So basically, I know. So basically, I'm calling him asking, are you reassigning the team's activities and asking us to reconsider the, you know, the strategic objectives we just aligned on. And of course he wasn't, but the habit of sending those, oh, I had an idea. What do you think? 
to all of us was one that we had to kill pretty quickly. <laughs> like, um, that, you know, he came back from holiday and, and that, like, that's where, that's where his ideas went. So now it's mostly just me who gets those kinds of ideas. I had an idea. What do you think emails? Um, but when that came in the first week, it was, it was difficult in his first week back after I was, after I was CEO. The other hard thing I think at the beginning was just working out how Box of Crayons and MBS works, the new company that Michael founded after he left the CEO role at Box of Crayons, figuring out how those two companies work together. So I remember Michael and I were in San Francisco maybe. And I remember a few conversations about, you know, like, is it shared? Do we have shared services? Which ones are they, if any? How does Michael work with Box of Crayons, if at all? Just things like that. And some of those conversations were just sort of tough because they were happening after we had already affected the change. And, you know, going back to the way Shannon's wired, which is not necessarily that um, I can't manage ambiguity, but that I like to have as much information up front. <laughs> and so right. that seemed, it just seemed like a difficult thing to be working through in, in early days. Was there anything in particular that surprised you or caught you off guard in the initial phases of the transition that you weren't expecting? Any, any challenges that you just, with all the work you'd done and coaching, you just didn't see coming? I mean, it, it kind of all was at that time, I have to say. <laughs> Good answer. Uh, I remember, yeah, I remember like Jill really clearly saying like, you need to offload, because I was a sales leader and she's like, you need to offload your sales stuff to the other sales team. And I was working on it, but just even that piece of work seemed so, so big. And I, I felt like I was overwhelming them. And she's like, no, you don't understand. Your desk is going, his desk's going to hit your desk <laughs> on July 1. And so you need to get, you, you need to get your desk cleared. And the, the part of the challenge was I didn't know what his desk looked like. Right. You know? Yeah. So I guess like that was the most surprising thing is that even though there was a lot of coaching, Michael himself couldn't really onboard me because what his role was as CEO, like just looked different from mine. Like he wore a, a number of other hats in the organization. I mean, that's one of the surprising things actually, Ben, is that I, I knew it was coming, but it was surprisingly harder once Michael was um, out of the CEO role and just working. He worked for a time still internally at Box of Crayons as the head of head of program design, but we knew that we wanted to transition him out. Like he wanted to fully be over at, at MBS Works. And I think that in hindsight, one of the things I would have done differently is for us to have mapped out really carefully what that transition out of those other, that other functional role was going to look like, like how committed would he be at box of crayons and what would that look like? And how would we find somebody to replace him? And what would that replacement look like? I probably would have asked for more collaboration and for us to map that out a little bit. And were there any disagreements strong or otherwise that you, that you had? And the reason I asked that is having spoken to a fair few number of people over the years who have either worked in family-run businesses or businesses mm-hmm. where the kind of founder is still involved, semi-involved. One of the challenges that people often share with me is that, well, if you disagree and you disagree with the with the founder or the family, like wh- where do you go? Because often it's their, it's their business, their baby, and they'll just shut the conversation down. So did did you have any of those sorts of issues or or was were things smooth in that respect? You know what? Like they were honestly pretty smooth. I mean, Michael um certainly exercises influence whether or not he knows that. I'm 
you know, influenced by a, an idea he has or a, a preference he might seem to have in terms of the direction or strategy. But he, you know, will say pretty clearly, and I think he has, you know, in other contexts, that he sees his just the you know the decision making power of the board is is mostly limited to firing me um, and deciding to sell the company. Yeah. And so we we haven't really like the things that we disagree about have been much smaller, <laughs> like what our materials should look like for participants, like things that are definitely within the decision making power of not just me, but somebody else on the team yeah, okay. that are because Michael was, the, you know, is the the designer of, of all of all of our stuff that he's just wed to some of those things. So we've had some f- funny sort of more petty disagreements, but but nothing like you're describing really not not yet yeah not with the kind of tension that I think you've you've heard from others yeah that's that's amazing yeah that's also a nice nice lead-in to the next question I wanted to ask you which is almost as if we planned this which is talking about the the decision tree and again Michael and I spoke about this back in episode 78 and I know you used it in your transition work and I I believe it comes from Susan Scott's book right Fierce Conversations yeah so as I say, kind of Michael and I spoke about how the two of you used it, but I understand you've continued to to use it as a concept more more widely in the business. What does what does that look like, Shannon? It's, yeah, so so Michael probably, like you said, gave you a bit of this, but so yeah, we use the decision tree to sort of whittle down the very few decisions that are root. So those ones that Michael is required to make as the board chair, or um, him and the rest of the board, in collaboration with me. And we, you know, in the early days, we'd synced up daily for about fifteen minutes, so I could run anything by him that had crossed my desk that I had a question about. But then that pretty quickly shifted to a weekly check in, and then by January, at six months in, we were just at lunch once a month to check in on what was going well and what what was challenging. You know, and I, the reason the meetings could become fewer and fewer is because I was finding my way in terms of what was root versus trunk. Yeah. Um, I think leaf and branch were typically pretty clear, except sometimes in the instance of the training materials, as I mentioned. Yeah, like, so once once I realized like, oh, this is helping me to not need to go back to Michael and double, double check, like, oh, can I make this decision? Or I bring him something just to talk about and he'll say at the outset. So just to be clear, this is your decision to make, but I'm happy to be a sound board. So I sort of thought, oh, this would be, this is a good idea to help the rest of the team also get that kind of autonomy. So we cascaded the decision tree across the whole company. Um, and the way we did this is that we just had each department lead fill out the tree with their team. So identify, you know, what is a leaf decision? So a decision I can make and don't need to report to anybody. A branch decision. So one that I can make and then just report it out later as an FYI. And then what is trunk? So that means it's a decision that me or my department can make, but I'm bringing it forward as a recommendation and I'm going to take some advice and considerations from the team to incorporate before I act on that decision. And then what's root, which requires requires collaboration and for everybody to be in agreement before the t- decision's made. So having them all sit down and fill that out, I think was a good exercise and getting clear on, you know, what don't we need to escalate and be accountable for. And and the purpose of this wasn't to have an artifact because that actual table that each function created pretty quickly becomes static and obsolete because it can't capture every hypothetical decision that needs to be made on the regular. But the purpose again is just to sit down and understand the kinds of decisions that are yours or your team's to make or to make and report or, or to bring forward. And what was interesting about those is so they went and people went and they filled up the tables, but then we required a number 
some of those functions, it was really clear and easy. But then, for example, between marketing and program development or, you know, marketing and and product, there was some overlap. And so it's interesting to address that accountability and and, and where there seemed to be tension between, you know, both functions have a a stake in something. Yeah. How how did that overlap come about then? After each team had done it, did you do a degree of sort of a sharing exercise, sort of cross-function, did you? That's right. Yeah. So we shared, we put them all into one document and then we would share them. Um, we reviewed them. And so people would comment and say, you know, like, oh, but I think, you know, our team should make this recommendation or owns the final decision yeah, about nice. that or something that, you know, say marketing might have thought this is the branch decision so I can make it and let you know later. And product thought the same thing themselves. So they realize actually what they have there is a trunk decision that needs to be made with the input of both of them. So that's the kind of, that's the kind of thing that happened. Uh, Um, Yeah. The idea has been to just kind of try to push down decision-making power as much as possible so that there's accountability and autonomy and also speed and less bottlenecking. And because decision fatigue is real, (laughs) it's it's real. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. I mean, this is probably a great example of what we was talking about a few minutes back in terms of team development interventions and one of the benefits is is often when you get this shared language right it just shortcuts and accelerates conversations doesn't it where once you've got this in the business as a a mindset when you're having those decisions when decision fatigue is setting in someone can go oh no hang on what 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 we're talking about here why why we even investing any more time on this this clearly is a is a leaf decision so go oh yeah great okay it is or or I guess someone goes, well, well, no, I don't think it is. I'm, I'm convinced this is a trunk decision. And then you have the, the, the debate and wrestle as, as required, right? That's right. And the, it, we found that the thing that was required for people to really assess what kind of decision it was accurately was an understanding of the implications of a decision in their area for the rest mm. of the business. Yeah, I, I love that bit about the the model actually after I first spoke to Michael I probably similar to you I thought oh I I need to learn all I can about this so I read (laughs) loads of articles I've not got around to actually reading the book yet but I think that's one of the key distinctions isn't it around this decision tree model it's not necessarily about the importance of the decisions or even where they sit in an organizational hierarchy it's more about about the impact isn't it like the opportunity that this decision is going to do good or harm to the business again if you carry on the analogy like if you pull a leaf off of a tree that's right it's unlikely to to have much impact and do much damage but if you start swinging an axe into the trunk you're, yep. you're going to do some more significant damage so that, I, I love that part of the analogy it's quite powerful I think yeah exactly and uh, there are instances where people you know, perceive something to be a leaf or a branch because they don't understand how that that decision Mm. actually does threaten the structural integrity of the tree. And so understanding, yeah, just understanding implications of decisions a bit better is a learning curve for, I think it's a learning curve for everybody. You said earlier about six, by about six months in, your check-ins with Michael had gone down to a lunch uh, every month. And then if I'm if I'm right, if I recall correctly, then about twelve months in, you disappeared off on maternity leave, right? Yeah, I mean, I didn't disappear. <laughs> oh, actually, yeah, <laughs> Bri- briefly. Yeah, it was very briefly, if we're being honest. <laughs> so, <laughs> I went on maternity leave in uh, September of the year following. So I'd been in the role. I mean, yeah. So January, Michael and I are just having lunches. You know, we're having quarterly board meetings, but Michael and I are having lunches. 
uh, January, end of January, we have an open house for a headquarters that we've gotten not to work in regularly. We're a distributed company, but a place where we can meet and collaborate and have events and things like that. And then COVID hits in March and I announce my pregnancy <laughs> and then I, and then I go on leave in September. So the decision tree was also devised um, in part as part of my prep for my leave. And, and figuring out authority delegation, because the idea is how can I go on leave and the team just has no decisions they need to make or as few decisions as possible that need to be made. Yeah. And so the decision tree was part of that leave. And the other part of that was I had a weekly maternity log. This was interesting, actually, because when I was thinking about how am I going to do this leave and I, you know, I made a proposal to the board about what my leave would look like. I was Googling around for this and there's not very, the only examples I could really find were young women who had startups who went on leaves, uh, on maternity leaves, because frankly, there's just not a lot of women in, in their childbearing years who are in my position. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Interesting. Right. Like that, or at least like that's, I think we know that anyway, but try to find a model for how a CEO goes on maternity leave and you'll pretty quickly really realize that, that, that that's the case. So I, I got this idea of a weekly maternity log from a woman who had a startup where she just had each of her leadership team members fill out a weekly log that was like any, you know, big critical developments, any threats to the business, any decision that needs to be made in the next week. Um, and so that was just to keep me on the loop in the loop on anything that I might be needed around. So I was out for about six weeks. And then after that, I was reading the weekly maternity log and then joining the team for the weekly team meeting as needed to help make decisions. Yeah. I mean, it's, it was early COVID times too. So it was a kind of a difficult time to be out. Perfect storm. Um, yeah. I mean, I, it, it was what it was. The leave was too short. And it wasn't protected enough, but that was my own design. I didn't design it as well as I could have. It's one of the few regrets that I have. I've made that mistake twice. I have two kids, but it's, yeah, <laughs> it's one of those things. Yeah. Um, Shannon, I've got a few quick fire questions to probably wrap things up, which I love to ask. The first one is, and I always have to caveat this now. Other than your mobile phone, because yeah. before I said that everyone would say my, my mobile phone. So other than your mobile phone, what is one item that if it were to be lost, stolen or broken, you would have to immediately go out and replace? Like, I guess my computer, but that's too close to mobile phone. <laughs> my, my water bottle, I can't go long without my water bottle. I forgot it at a friend's house this summer. And for the 24 hours I was without it, I felt lost. My espresso machine. We bought an espresso machine. So we replaced our French press with a lovely yeah. little home espresso machine. And it's the best thing I've procured in the last two years. That, that's, uh, that's my answer. My espresso machine. Brilliant. I'd immediately replace it. <laughs> Brilliant. Love it. Yeah. And what, what is one book that has really had a significant impact upon you? Or to ask the question another way, one book that you frequently find yourself recommending to other people? Hmm. I don't know that I f any longer find myself frequently recommending this book to other people. Uh, but when I was when I was teaching, I certainly was. This is supposed to be a quick fire answer, too. <laughs> well, they, ne they never are. Don't worry. Okay. I'm like, you've just asked a, a literature scholar about, about a <laughs> significant impact. So first of all, finding that book, finding that book and then explaining the impact is not going to be a short, it's not going to be a short answer. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Thinking about devising my classes and what I taught. So 
I tend to love texts that are themselves about the function of literature. So they're sort of meta in that way. So books about our desire to derive meaning from, from experience, which is a mostly futile human endeavor, but, but so be it. I love, love Stephen Crane's late 19th century short story, The Open Boat. And I really tried to get students excited about the short story when I was teaching. And sometimes that, that was futile. But when I first read it, I was 19 or 20 studying literature at the University of Toronto. And it, I remember like it just gutted me. So it's based on Crane's experience being shipwrecked, but more than a piece of, of journalism, which is what I think it technically is, a piece of naturalist journalism. It's a meditation on how we attempt to hedge against nihilism wow. in our belief that there must be a point to our suffering, even if it's just that you understand better something about the nature of, of human existence. So there's this moment of frustration in the story when the correspondent, um, who's one of the, the characters this is focalized around, he describes his frustration at nature's brutal indifference to their nautical conundrum of being uh, shipwrecked. And he imagines nature as this temple that he can go and be angry with. Uh, and he reflects that he at first wishes to throw bricks at the temple, and he hates deeply the fact that there are no bricks and no temples, and that the indifference of nature hurts. Like, I, I had a younger brother that died. It was a sudden tragedy. He was run over by a truck when he was 20 years old. And in the days and weeks after his death, I had this refrain from an Elizabeth Bishop poem stuck in my head, all the untidy activity continues, awful but cheerful. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's something so devastating about how insignificant you feel and how small you realize your existence to be when, you're tra- when your personal tragedy doesn't stop the world. You know, yeah. it's enough that like you feel like you need a new language to survive in it, but everyone else is just continuing about their day. So yeah, the the story, the open boat ends with uh, the narrator telling us that they thought they could then be interpreters. So they've what they've derived from the experience is that they thought they they could be interpreters, and that little word they thought is so powerful for me here, like that subtle irony from the narrator. So it's not that they're able to interpret the world or their experience, but that they now think that they can. You know, and I I think we all want to have power over our lives and control and to feel that things have purpose and that we matter. And in this story, the only power these these men have over what happens to them is how they choose to interpret it. I think great literature plays in that space between sort of valorizing and slightly undermining this human quest to impose structure on chaos and to create meaning from experience which is what writers are doing when they when they set out to write something anyway, right? So yeah. so that's my quick fire answer. It's Stephen Crane's The Open Boat, <laughs> which is a beautiful short story that you should read if you haven't. Well, yeah, I was literally just, just going to say that you've absolutely sold sold me. I'd not not even heard of the book before, if I'm honest, but I will go and uh, go and find a copy and, and read it, I think. And as you were describing it, actually, it, I connected in my mind from that to... Deepak Chopra's book Metahuman which again if I'm really honest I, I picked up and tried to read about two and a half years ago and I got like one chapter in and was thoroughly lost and confused <laughs> um, but I think I'll, I'll give that another go as well because that's very much talking about sort of as the title suggests sort of metahuman now interpretation of the of the world around us yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. very very cool 
Shannon, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Like it's been absolutely fascinating learning more about your transition into the CEO role, just how planned and deliberate it was in the in the handover. Um, and I'm sure it'll be so, so valuable for lots of other people who either find themselves in that situation right now or perhaps plan to be in that situation in the future. So thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful talking to you. Yeah, thank you. This was fun. There you have it, folks. That was episode 100. And I really can't believe we've done 100 episodes of the show. It seems absolutely incredible to me. As always, I really hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, do please get in touch with me and let me know what you think or what you thought. The best way to do that is to find me over on LinkedIn. I'm on there as Ben Morton Leadership. and I'd love to hear from you. And finally, folks, if you have got just three or four minutes to spare, I'd be hugely grateful if you could rate and review the show over on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a massive difference to us. But that's it for this episode. I look forward to talking to you again soon. And until then, lead on. Lead on.